Our partner is conducting a survey and would be grateful for your help in answering a few questions. It'll take less than 10 minutes of your time and your participation helps support our advertisers. Please go to slatestudy.com to complete the short survey now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, October 10th, the Impeachment Sisterhood Edition. I'm Christina Carucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. We are truly dispersed this week. Marcia is calling in from California. June is actually out on holiday in her homeland. Um... We have a couple really good topics this week. First up on our docket this week is an essay from Rowena Chu, who says Harvey Weinstein tried to rape her. She was his assistant. uh, And he told her he liked Chinese girls because they knew how to keep a secret. Then we're going to talk about one of the hottest topics in politics, the Trump impeachment inquiry and the Democratic women who are getting credit for it, for pushing the idea of impeachment forward. Uh, And finally, we're going to discuss season two of Sorry for Your Loss, which is a show on Facebook Watch, which I didn't even know was a thing. Uh, The show stars Elizabeth Olsen as a woman grieving the death of her husband. And Nicole... Tell us about our Slate Plus segment this week. Our Slate Plus segment looks at the recent panel interview of Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhi, who are the authors of the book, She Said, which covers their investigation of the sexual misconduct allegations against Harvey Weinstein and Bob Woodward, um, who is a you know, long herald journalist moderated a panel and uh, did not seemingly do a great job of it and has been criticized for that. Um, So we're going to look at that and figure out, um, is it sexist that he belittled their investigation? I think I know what you're going to say, Nicole. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell? (laughs) If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. One more order of business before we get going. As you all hopefully know, our very own Nicole hosts Thirst Aid Kit, a great show about celebrity and desire with co-host Bim Adewunmi. Thirst Aid Kit recently joined the Slate Podcast Network. So at the end of today's episode, we're going to play a clip from the show's first episode with Slate. And I hope you stay tuned to listen to it. It's a really good episode. Make sure you subscribe to Thirst Aid Kit wherever you get your podcasts for brand new thirst in your feed every week. Okay, our first topic for the day, Rowena Chu, one of Harvey Weinstein's former assistants, recently came forward with allegations that he'd tried to rape her in 1998. She wrote an essay about the experience in the New York Times. She talks about it in the book She Said, which you just mentioned, Nicole. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about the essay? So um, the essay gives us uh, more of a background of her experience with Harvey Weinstein and how she ended up um, as his assistant. She is a British Chinese woman who was looking to get into Hollywood and film. Um, So Rowena Chu interviewed with Zelda Perkins and came on board as an assistant. And Zelda told her, you know, if you just handle him robustly, you'll be fine. He does have a reputation for um, inappropriate conduct and, you know, lots of misbehavior, like anger issues. Um, But if you just go along with it and handle him with some strength and courage, you'll be okay. And and during the time of the, that Shakespeare in love came out, Rowena was sitting in front of him at a screening and he yelled at her for trying to move out of his way. And she realized that she was being tested. Like all these things were uh, he was giving her a little test to figure out how much she could take, how much she could tolerate and what she would do if she would tell at the slightest little thing. About four years after that, Rowena gives a description of an event that we have come to know as his alleged pattern, where he invites a woman into his hotel room to go over script or some other kind of ideas or whatever. And then he asks for a massage or asks to massage the person. And that's what happened here. And what's interesting about this article and what Rowena says is that she talks about um, the four power dynamics that were in play with Harvey Weinstein. And that is the four power dynamics of gender race, seniority, and wealth. 
And I thought she did a great job of outlining that um, because it's just very clear that these things were all at play here for her encounter with Harvey. Um, From there, she goes on to talk about how um, after he allegedly attempted to rape her at this at this meeting in his hotel room, she went to Zelda Perkins. They then tried to report him to whatever authorities that they could. Um, and then they had to suffer through the indignity of of reporting. Um, they were put into this room where they weren't allowed uh, food or water or breaks for an extended amount of time. Yeah, this was when they were um, negotiating some kind of settlement or non-disclosure agreement, which, you know, they were sort of told was their only chance at recourse. Right, um, because... You know, no one was taking them seriously and they were people were laughing at them for even attempting to try to uh, call him out on his behavior. And they, it, it, she did end up settling. She signed the NDA. She settled for the equivalent of two hundred and thirteen thousand U.S. dollars. Um, and then she was kind of blacklisted from jobs uh, as she tried to find something else for about six months after this. And she still ended up at Miramax and. For like 20 years, she had to keep this secret because of the NDA, because she didn't know what her options were outside of what she had already done. And it wasn't until um, Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhi started their investigations um, and broke the story that Rowena decided to come forward. Um, And then when she saw the September 2018 Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing and Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, she felt even more empowered um, and she was, you know, decided to put her uh, experience into her own words so that she can add her voices to those who were coming forward. I really thought this article was important because it is covering two important things that I don't think that we can um, belabor when thinking about Me Too and the culture of um, sexual misconduct in the workplace and sexual assault is that people who do these types of things usually not only have a pattern, but she talks about um, the grooming process and about testing limits and boundaries and seeing how much a person will tolerate and how desperate they are. And there's Mm -hmm. something about um, the entertainment industry in which your success isn't just predicated on your talent. It's about your ability to move with people with lots of power, which you could say about a lot of industries. And so in her revealing her desire to, you know, be in the entertainment industry her lack of financial resources to ever really match Harvey Weinstein. It's helpful for people who I think are still stuck in the framework of, well, if this were me at the workplace, I wouldn't tolerate it. I would just walk out the door. Anytime we believe that we are better or more courageous than people who go through things like this, pieces like this remind us of, what it's like to have no seniority in the workplace, what it's like to not have people believe you when you're a target. And the other part of it that I thought was really helpful is she talks about the ways that his fetishizing Asian women gets animated in this dynamic. And I think people underestimate how powerful representation, like in Hollywood, the industry he worked in, is in creating people's expectations for certain types of dynamics and then the ways that she internalized those dynamics about um, being polite and enjoying the, she calls it the social benefits of being deferential. So both of them are subject to these ideas about race and gender together and how they interact is so powerful because both of them are trying to operate under this system that is so flawed and dehumanizing and you see when those two things converge how really tragic it is yeah and 
he moves very quickly in her telling from sort of desexualizing her like and and um you know making racist comments toward her like oh i would never do a jewish or a chinese woman to then saying like oh i like chinese women because they're so discreet or and and also you know as he's allegedly attempting to rape her like i've never had a chinese woman before like and and using it to sort of gin up his own sexual excitement um but what really struck me about this piece and that which I've been thinking about ever since I read it was how clearly and deeply she has been thinking about this for decades. I mean, to be able to write an essay like this, so clearly laying out exactly why she behaved the way she did, you can just tell that this has been weighing on her for so long that she's wondered for decades why she behaved the way she did as if there was, you know, possibly a way she could have behaved differently or prevented it. It like it, it just kills me to think about the that there are dozens of women who allegedly um, I have to say allegedly because Harvey Weinstein, you know, has denied choose story and said they had a consensual relationship, but um, that, you know, there are dozens of women who allegedly have been put in this position where for, you know, possibly the majority of their careers, they've been thinking, did I do the right thing? Why did this happen to me? What did I do to make this happen to me? Um, None of them had any idea the extent to which his abuse, you know, was perpetrated for decades, allegedly, uh, until all of this came out. You know, I think everybody sort of knew their own little piece of it and and maybe knew of, of some other women who had allegedly been subjected to this behavior. But a lot of the grappling with what went on seems to have happened, for Chu at least, alone. Right. And I think it's it's fascinating to me the way Weinstein's racism was also supposed to be a place of comfort for the women around him. Um, when I say comfort, I mean more like safety. So, you know, when um, Rowena Chu, she says that when she first was hired, um, he would, you know, he told her, don't worry, I don't, I don't mess, I don't do Chinese girls. Um, and I, I can't help but think of when Lupita Nyong'o came out with her story as well. And it was one of the first times that he uh, actively came out and said, no, this did not happen. Like he was very um, vehement about saying, no, I would never have done anything like that. And it just had this kind of smoke of racism around it like I wouldn't do a black woman and especially not a dark-skinned black woman I mean you know obviously you can kind of read whatever you want into his denial um, but it was very clear because she was one of the first if only black women I believe to come forward about her experience with Harvey Weinstein I'm sorry Harvey Weinstein so the fact that he you know is using his racism or excuse me I don't want to say the fact the possibility of him using his racism both to make women feel safe while also um, misleading them about how safe they were around him just fascinates me because it's so twisted um, that he would allegedly do something like this. But it's also not surprising somehow. Yeah. And and Lupita Nyong'o had alleged that you know, Harvey Weinstein had pressured her into coming into his room to giving him a massage and that, you know, she had to forcefully reject him multiple times um, in order to escape his room. Um, And I thought it was interesting that on the New York Times on Rowena Chu's page, you know, the sort of suggested articles at the bottom were that piece by Lupita Nyong'o, and then another piece by Salma Hayek, another, you know, one of the relatively few women of color who have come forward to say that Harvey Weinstein, um, uh, you know, attempted to sexually assault them or abuse them in some way. You know, neither of those pieces, neither Lupita Nyong'o's piece nor Salma Hayek's piece explicitly discussed race in the way that Chu's piece did. But to me, it helped establish that, you know, this this isn't about Harvey Weinstein having a type that whatever he was saying about, you know, what races he does or does not find attractive is has nothing to do with what he actually did. It's not about sexual attraction to like a specific type of Hollywood woman or something. It's about the way he was able to manipulate these women's 
ambitions and and talents against them. Um, and I thought the fact that Rowena was an assistant and, uh, you know, not a, a Hollywood actress who was trying to get a role in one of his films, but, you know, somebody who was trying to work under him in an administrative capacity, the fact that she is now sort of getting the same treatment that a lot of these actresses did with a portrait at the top of her page and her, you know, story being told in her own voice, not just sort of like a name in an, in a, an interview in a much larger piece. Um, I, I think that makes her story just as important or even more important because a lot of the focus of the Me Too movement, especially as it related to Harvey Weinstein, was about these sort of very powerful women. And, oh, my gosh, isn't it great that they're putting their face on this story? And, wow, if he was able to abuse them, he could have abused anybody. Um, but, you know, this is just somebody who felt so not powerful that she didn't even feel capable of coming out when the the big Harvey Weinstein story came out. You know, it took her a year or more later to even feel comfortable talking about it to anybody because of the NDA she signed. She spent decades feeling like she couldn't even talk about it to her husband or to her close friends because Harvey Weinstein was going to come after her. And I also think the point that you make is an important one that needs to be reinforced that the public view of Me Too at this moment often focuses on women with lots of power. But if you think about the various places um, that Me Too has inspired movement, it's about women who are cleaning hotels and women in the service industry, um, young women who are under state care and have very little recourse when they're sexually abused. And so if we think about all of the different factors that she said contributed to this situation, this power differential, you know, if it can affect the careers of Hollywood actors and actresses, and if it can affect people who are just trying to work in this industry, it makes us really think like, then how does it play out in the lives of someone who's working for minimum wage? How does it play out in terms of women who don't have recourse because they're incarcerated? And I think that if I could critique one thing about the article, the way that it framed me too as revolving around Hollywood was a bit inaccurate. But I think that the point remains that when we think about the ways that race creates these different subcategories of some women matter, some don't. Some women you can violate their boundaries, some women you can't. I think it makes us a little bit more aware and hopefully more sensitive to the fact that, you know, there are generations of people who are raised on these portrayals of women of color that create their own framework for who they can abuse and get away with it and who's credible and who's not. And that piece paired with the piece by Lisa Ko, also in the New York Times about um, Chanel Miller, who previously was known as Emily Doe um, in the Brock Turner rape case. She recently um, published her memoir and Lisa Cohn, the New York Times wrote a piece about why it matters that Chanel Miller is Asian American and why it matters that a woman of color puts herself in front of a judicial system that reduces her and also tells her story about someone who, again, is in that position of being um, both invisible in terms of feeling like she has power and then hyper visible in these racialized sexual fantasies about compliance and obedience. And I think hopefully this again is a moment for people to have a more sophisticated understanding of why a lot of people don't um, tell their stories and the things that happen when you do and, and the real emotional toll it takes. Yeah, the Chanel Miller case is really interesting to me. I just finished her memoir, um, highly recommended. It's called Know My Name. And she talks about, you know, growing up Asian American and how it, it was a very important part of her identity, her, you know, her half Chinese identity. Uh, and she talks about being 
misraced by a probation officer who she talked to on the phone where, you know, she was saying I how she really wanted Brock Turner to be put in therapy. That was really important to her that, you know, even if he went to jail or prison, that she really wanted him to um, have the opportunity to get better because she was at University of California, Santa Barbara during the Elliot Rogers shooting. And she was just thinking, you know, if men are rejected and and ostracized even more, you know, they can turn violent. And the probation officer, first of all, put her down as white, uh, assumed that, you know, when she was listening to her voice that she was a white woman, and then took that to mean that she didn't want Brock Turner to serve any prison or jail time. Um, and she talks about how angry she was at that, uh, at the fact that she was sort of misinterpreted as being sort of like nurturing and forgiving when actually she just wanted him to get therapy. And and also with the fact that her her identity was sort of erased in that moment. And even Lisa Coe in this New York Times piece says, you know, I, I had assumed Emily Doe was white um, because that's sort of the default in America. Um, and Chanel Miller's anonymity in that victim impact statement that she published in BuzzFeed was really powerful because anyone could sort of see themselves in her. But now that she's come forward with this memoir, I was just struck by how powerful the specificity of her person and her identity was. And that's sort of a different kind of power now because she's not, quote unquote, just a survivor of sexual assault. She's a very specific person with very specific life experiences that contribute in their own way to the way she processes her sexual assault and and in her decision of whether or not to press charges against Brock Turner. Um, I was sort of worried that the book would flatten her and reduce her to this one experience, but it it had the exact opposite effect. It was also about her hobbies and her fears and and her relationship with her parents. And it just reminded me, as Rowena Chu's essay did, that there are very personal and specific reasons why people decide to come forward or not after experiencing something like a sexual assault. I wonder um, between these two essays and um, these women's experiences as um, Asian women fighting against white men who have money and connections and, and we're talking about race. I wonder if there was any consideration about um, the quote unquote model minority myth um, that gets put a lot of times on um, Asian peoples and uh, particularly about the what some would consider um, being adjacent to whiteness and and the privilege of Asians and Asian Americans um, when it comes to racist hierarchy, um, for lack of a better word. I'm curious about that, if there is any further discussion about that, either in Chanel Miller's book or in the analyses of these two um, women's stories. But I think it's very important that both of them have identified the ways in which they have been made invisible because of their race and because of their ethnicities and how now they're talking and taking back control of their narrative. Like it's important that they told their stories to other people and, you know, people have reported about them and, and gotten their stories out. But I, it's significant that they were, that both of these women were like, but I still have my voice. And even though someone's told my story, I'm going to say these words in my voice as well. So you can hear me and see me and know that I am real. And I think that's amazing. And I'm, I'm just I'm blown away by their um, their courage. All right. That's all the time we have for this topic. Listeners, let us know what you thought of Rowena Chu's essay. The title of the essay is Harvey Weinstein Told Me He Liked Chinese Girls. It's in The New York Times. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Two weeks ago, Nancy Pelosi announced that House Democrats would begin an impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. Marsha, what have you been reading about this? I have been reading everything and watching everything. (laughs) Breaking news is a ritual in my household. And one story that I saw on CNN and then I saw online was about a group of 
women members of Congress who call themselves the badasses. And it's been framed as the anti-squad. And so if the squad comprised the radical women of the House, the badasses represent um, women who were formerly part of the military or the intelligence community who ran for Congress and flipped some places that had been previously red to blue. But they're all about moderation, and they have been credited with turning the tide toward impeachment because as moderates, they are framed as people who are more even-tempered in their approach to thinking about the president. And because the impeachment inquiry emerged from concerns about pay-for-play in terms of President Trump providing resources to Ukraine in exchange for information about Joe Biden and his son Hunter, because it touched that national security rail, the badasses have been activated and they have been getting a lot of coverage for their, um, I guess, sisterhood of the traveling intel information. I don't know. Um, <laughs> as, you can, as you can hear from the tone of my voice, I am deeply uncomfortable with the framing um, of two things. The idea that... Um, to suggest that this president um, should be subject to an impeachment inquiry um, is not something that uh, House women on the left can be trusted with. Um, and the idea that this is a victory for this group rather than perhaps um, an extension of strategic work on the part of Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff also kind of concerns me. But there's this way that this group of women are being celebrated that really kind of brings home, I think, the dynamics of race and power, that this group of white women who are really tethered to um, big state entities like the military and the intelligence community that I think are really ripe for a lot of critiques about their procedures in the world are being heralded as heroes as they are put against the women of the left like AOC and Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Presley, who have been really honest and clear about the damage of this administration from the beginning. And so I think we're going to see a lot of, um, as this impeachment inquiry unfolds, I think there's going to be a lot of gassing up of the badasses and there's going to be a lot more think pieces about them. David Brooks is going to herald them in the New York Times. There's going to be a photo shoot. And there's going to be a real erasure of the work that women of color have done to try to run races and try to ask incisive questions about the direction of the country. Yeah, I, what strikes me um, about this boosting of these badasses um, when it comes to looking at, uh, like you said, Marsha, that these are white women doing this. Uh, it's kind of this ver- this group of white women versus this group of women of color. I think what stands out to me is the way these women talk about the squad, um, quote unquote. Um, they lean very heavily on white femininity right they lean you know they're just like oh we would never talk about anyone out in public on twitter you know if we have a problem we'll just go to them and talk to them and it's very nice we're the nice ones but we're still getting things done and i was just like ugh, gag me um and uh, you know maxine waters has been has also been calling for impeachment since trump was in office so you know her erasure strikes me as uh, very telling as well but I I'm I'm very frustrated with um, the way these badasses they're getting a spotlight that possibly uh, they don't deserve right now. It is very interesting to me that the idea has sort of risen to the fore that because some people waited longer to deem Trump worthy of an impeachment inquiry, that those people are like the more sane and reasonable ones. When it seems to me like the sane and reasonable take on Donald Trump is that he has already committed multiple impeachable offenses. And that, you know, just because his impeachable offense has touched your area of expertise, like this is the moment and your time to shine. And and that happens to 
fall right in with when Nancy Pelosi feels like it's time to actually call for impeachment. It's it's a weird sort of glorification of, you know, the military and national security apparatuses as like an automatic vehicle for seriousness and knowledge and judiciousness. It really that really bothers me, Um, you know, versus the women who were saying like, actually, you know, the fact that he's violating human rights on the border or the fact that, you know, he was giving secret payments to people to, to hush them up or um, t- the fact that he was, you know, uh, encouraging Russia to interfere in the election. Or that your children are profiting from their brand and the fact that they have a dad in the White House, that Ivanka keeps on clearing trademarks in China. Like all of these are things that none of these women were motivated by. Yeah, I feel like the idea that there's something inherently badass about – I'm not sure whether they decided to call themselves badasses just because they were in the military and the CIA and what have you or whether they're badass specifically because they are now you know, turning against their, their districts that voted for Trump by a margin of seven points. But um, it, it bugs me that like they're – able to call themselves badasses as if they're, you know, the courageous ones in this scenario when the the other women who've been calling for impeachment, you know, Rashida Tlaib, right after she was um, sworn into office, was saying impeach the motherfucker. And there was a whole friggin' news cycle about it, about her use of the word motherfucker, not about the whether Trump was impeachable or not, you know, and and she was made a target because of that. Like, is, is she not a badass? Meanwhile, who's getting punished for using foul language there? The people who are calling themselves badasses or the woman who said motherfucker? There was a segment about the impeachment nonsense and Maxine Waters was basically calling out the media and saying, look, I've been calling for this guy to get removed from the beginning and now I can't go to the grocery store by myself. And so there's real consequences to the way that he um, targets people. And I think what's happening, if impeachment happens, it'll be really fascinating to see the um, rewriting of the story as soon as it concludes. So the number of people who had no idea how this could happen, the number of people who celebrate the moderates who were brave enough to finally vote for impeachment, and the erasure of the harm that has actually been done by this White House with their lying and their targeting and their bullying, that will be completely erased from the stage. And I think what I appreciate about Maxine Waters and what I appreciate about Ilhan Omar and um, Ayanna Presley is that the, every opportunity they have to talk about this, they say, hey, folks, we've been on this train since day one, and these things have consequences. And so I'm really curious about how that will fit into the kind of moral outrage and, you know, the deep sadness that the presidency is not this vaunted office when the behavior started the second he came down that ridiculous escalator at Trump Tower and announced he was going to run for president. And so it's this type of disingenuous behavior that I think not only alienates people from the political process, but it's like there isn't even enough respect for people to mask the cynicism because the cynical behavior just continues on and on. And then the narratives about patriotism and love of country, they continue to resonate even though they're far from the reality of how we got here. Yeah, I'm not quite sure who to blame in this scenario for this narrative, whether it's you know CNN who ran this article that's titled, These Five Freshman Congresswomen Changed History by Becoming Unlikely Leaders on Impeachment, or whether it's, you know, the badasses themselves for sort of advancing this narrative, or whether it's uh, Nancy Pelosi for her, you know, dragging of her feet uh, on this impeachment stuff and and sort of waiting for all the moderates to get on board and say, like, well, now he's gone too far, or whether it's the American public for, you know, having like waiting until those moderates were on board to sort of change their minds about uh, impeachment, because now all of a sudden a majority of Americans support the inquiry. Um, but but it is clear to me that Trump's smears, the the fact that he's been trying to portray the the opposition on the part of Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Maxine Waters, 
as as fundamentally unserious and illogical and irrational and trifling and knee jerk and not thought out um, that like that's that smear has really worked such that, you know, even Jake Tapper on CNN was asking one of the badasses like, oh, the fact that Rashida Tlaib um, and Al Green, who's a black congressman who was the first one to file articles of impeachment against Trump, he's done it multiple times, you know, because those people are involved, does that undermine the seriousness of this impeachment inquiry? You know, the I feel like what, what Trump has been trying to do has – he's succeeded actually in, in making these people seem like they, they're very valid anger – and moral and political opposition to him is anything but is just, you know, them um, spouting off about how they don't like him because of this, that or the other thing and not actual knowledge of his impeachable offenses. And so that bothers me because I feel like this is a evidence of Trump's success in some way, even as he's the subject of an impeachment inquiry. I'm curious how this will all be uh, marked in the annals of history because you know before our social media we pretty much would just have newspapers and maybe some pamphlets that people have kept um, you know in their attic someplace when it came to political protests and things like that but now we have social media and so as soon as that CNN article came out about these badasses people were pushing back against that um, on Mm. Twitter and social media even on Instagram I was seeing people like what is this and you know the Library of Congress uh, is supposedly you know filing our tweets away or whatever so I wonder if in 50 years or 100 years, someone's going to look, you know, they're going to read in their history book, oh, that these badasses caused the the impeachment of the 45th president of the United States of America. But then, you know, you go into a museum and you read a tweet from like, but Muncher 420. I don't know um, if that's a real person, but I'm just making that up. But, you know, you'll read this tweet from that person that, that says, no, this isn't true. We've got the squad. And then there's going to be like this record um however we save digitized records like tweets and all that then maybe that's me being overly optimistic about the possibility that these women that the squat will not be erased um because we have multiple ways of ensuring that they won't be erased uh i I don't know i certainly don't think that this is like that this the badasses caused impeachment is a universal narrative or even necessarily the narrative that is convincing to the most people um because you know like you said nicole we've seen so much pushback and 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 we're talking about it on this podcast so we too are having our voices heard in the record of history um but it, I think it is important to think about the way people conceptualize political power and exercising that political power and what it means to be a representative from a district that's red and that, you know, is, is possibly Trump country and, you know, how you present yourself when you do the right thing and and the way you represent your constituents' interests, which I think it's important to do that in, in good faith when, you know, on the opioid crisis about jobs, about healthcare, about whatever you ran on. But I, I think it's interesting to see how people talk about it when they do draw the line and say, I'm not going to represent my constituents insofar as their support for this corrupt uh, human rights violating hoodlum. Um, and, and whether you say that that's brave, that that's badass, whether you're having courage in the face of danger, AKA you just maybe not, won't get reelected or whether you say like, yeah, this is my job and I am doing the right thing. And, you know, thank you for, to these leaders who recognized before I did that this, that Trump was committing impeachable offenses in office. My concern of all of this is that the framing that the badasses are not only responsible for turning the tide, but it's the idea that this is the legitimate way in which politics should be practiced. And I think that the focus on them is also indicative of the fact that there are members of the news media who are more comfortable framing their narrative than having to quote unquote deal with, um, you know, people like Ilhan Omar. And so there's a way that there's a grace that has been afforded this group of women and it's reflected in the ways that um, a kind of a lack of moral courage is actually um, being applauded 
um, in this moment of real extreme political um, tension. And so I think that the celebration of moderation also undermines the possibility of affirming and actually respecting the fact that radical measures or even critical measures are important right now. And I think that it'll be interesting to see if there is more fuel to the kind of badass framing and the ways that that plays out in foreclosing people who have a more radical approach to thinking about change, how that then makes it even more difficult for them to emerge. Listeners, let us know who you are crediting with the emergence of the impeachment inquiry, or or even if we should be talking about credit in the first place. Uh, you can email us at thewaves at slate.com. We will very much look forward to hearing your thoughts about this. So how is work today? Change anyone's life? Oh, I'm lucky if they change their shirts. Well, did you change anyone's shirt today? Come on, it's Friday. Let's just enjoy this cheap-ass wine. Sorry for your delicious. loss. Trader Joe's it's a show on Facebook though. Watch created by Kit Steinkellner. Season one dropped last fall. I didn't watch it at the time, but I did in preparation for this episode. Uh, season two started last week. There are four episodes out now. So the show centers on a young woman named Lee, played by Elizabeth Olsen. We learn at the start of the series that she's just lost her husband, Matt. Uh, he His body was found at the bottom of a cliff. So Lee and her sister, Jules, who is recovering from addiction, live with their mother, Amy, who's sort of a Southern California uh, new age self-helper. The show is loosely about how their family and also Matt's brother, Danny, are going on with their lives after Matt's death. The first season is a little more narrowly focused on Lee, and there's a light air of mystery around it. She's trying to figure out if he died by suicide or by accident. The second season broadens the scope a little bit to tell things from Danny's point of view, too. Um, It's more about all these people's relationships to each other, how they're reshaped by a loss in the family. I have to say, I am impressed with this series especially because I think it's hard to make a series about a single person's death with a character who, you know, everything that they've done is in the past. And so the only thing that's changing is the the people around that person and their relationship to each other. Um, so I was really impressed with it. I didn't necessarily expect to like it because I thought that there was a way that it could be done that was just extremely depressing. But I I ended up loving it and kind of blew through the series. What did you guys think? I didn't know that there was um, a Facebook watch, um, whatever that is. <laughs> so like, the, yeah, um, <laughs> me neither. I did not realize that, so I was surprised. And watching the show, um, it's a little starker than I would prefer to watch right now. I've just I've realized that in the last several years, possibly because of our political climate, I'm not really I don't want to put all of that on onto that. Um, but I don't want to watch things that make me tense. I want to break away from the tension of, of my everyday life. And this show made me very tense. Um, my sister, just on a personal level, my sister's husband passed away very unexpectedly in his sleep about 11 years ago. And watching the show, I kind of want to tell her to watch this so that she can have something to relate to um, because she's still struggling with the idea of how long are you supposed to grieve someone um, or how long people think it's acceptable to grieve someone and move on before you can move on with your life. And I definitely remember her having some issues with that. And I want to show her this series so she can maybe connect to it and see herself uh, possibly in this. But I'm I feel weird about spending so much time on Facebook. So I Hmm. like ethically. Well, not just ethically, but also just like I don't know what they're what information they're mining while I'm sitting here watching this um, 30 minute episode, <laughs> which seems ridiculous. And I, I will definitely take any tinfoil hat you give me. But I <laughs> like, are they watching you through your computer's camera yeah, or something, something like that? You know, um, the show was fine. I thought it was a little predictable in, par- in parts. I felt like I could I felt like I knew what Lee was going to do um, very easily. And certain, you know, like mm. in the first episode where she's kind of 
uh, her sister is encouraging her to go back to the apartment to get her clothes and then the episode ends with her in front of the apartment and I'm like well yeah that's been telegraphed the whole 30 minutes or whatever um I just so things like that I'm just kind of like meh um I don't necessarily know that I would have continued to watch as much as I did I did not finish the series but um or what's available now but I don't know that I would have if we weren't discussing it today hmm. Marsha what do you think so I was interested in this uh, show because we recently lost a family member and I'm always curious about how popular culture represents grieving. And I think over the past few years, some of the shows have just gotten better in terms of showing that the experience encapsulates every human emotion like sometimes something funny happens and there's a lot of people being very awkward and then there's these really deeply poignant uh, moments kind of like the uh christina applegate netflix series dead to me which i thought yeah i love that was similar in the sense yeah like a younger woman becoming a widow and the fact that it's often after someone dies that you either discover or um, you rediscover things about them that have fallen out of the frame because of where your relationship was when they died. And so I appreciated the fact that this woman is grieving her husband, but the reality that in marriage or any other kind of relationship, you really don't know a person fully. And that sometimes it's when they're gone that you have an opportunity to see things from a different frame. I think that is one of the better parts of the show. I'm not entirely convinced of the couple as a couple. Um, there's something about their chemistry in the episodes that I saw that I could... I can recognize their dynamic, but I wasn't totally sold on them. But I'll continue watching it because I think that stories like this are the types of stories that need to be told. I always appreciate um, representations of multiracial and multiethnic families where the central drama isn't about racial difference, but it's noted um, so I kind of appreciate that from a representation standpoint, but I do think that they capture really, really well the fact that when you are grieving, you are sometimes really mad at everyone around you for not understanding the pace of your grief. And I think they really capture that well. I happen to really like their relationship as a couple. I thought that they did a very good job for me anyway of making the dead character seem real. I mean, I think they they use a lot of flashbacks, but I think they use each of them to a very specific purpose um, and sort of, you know, Im embedded in the character's lives. You know, a flashback comes up when a character has occasion to think about the character, um, um, Matt, who's dead. Um, and, you know, they're not just sort of like flashbacks for the sake of exposition. Um, but I, I liked their relationship together. And I especially like all the little... Um, idiosyncratic details that they add to the way the families relate to each other and and not just in the couple but um you know Lee and Matt's brother Danny have a kind of a, a tense relationship they're sometimes very connected sometimes very mad at each other don't want to be talking to each other and so they decide that they're just going to text each other emojis so they'll do she'll send an emoji and he'll send one back and they don't really mean anything it's just like letting them know like I'm here I'm okay um, you know we don't need to talk to each other but just like a way of maintaining a connection or um, you know Lee's family has during a Christmas episode they're sort of tradition is to write on ornaments what happened that year I feel like there are a lot of very like creative ways of showing, you know, familial connections that aren't just having conversations about what is our relationship, which I, I think a lot of sort of family dramas or dramedies can fall into that really annoying trap. But th there, this was fleshed out in a, a colorful way that I really appreciated. I also really liked the um, treatment of psychiatric medication. It's a plot line in season one where um, Matt, the character who dies, uh, 
tells Lee when they're dating, you know, I've been on Prozac on and off since college. It's really helpful for me. And she has a harder time accepting it because she's like, well, I've read all these articles that say we're being overmedicated and, you know, we're we're subjected to the whims of our pharmaceutical overlords. Um, and it's it's not an issue that gets easily solved. She doesn't just sort of like calmly accept it like it comes up again and again and he's dealing with depression. Um, I thought it was a very sensitive treatment of that issue. And I also like that it showed, you know, this guy dealing with his his own emotions, this man who is like grappling with mental illness um, and able to cry. Like, I, I just don't think I've seen many depictions of men in that position. Yeah, that's one thing that stood out to me as well, that it was a I think it was a very nuanced look at um, black men and mental health, which we don't get often on TV or streaming, I guess. I don't know what you want to call this um, anymore, but I appreciated that because it, it gives you a moment to think that anybody can be affected by mental illness and that we need to take it more seriously, particularly with black men. And like also there's this possibility that, uh, you know, he may have committed suicide. So talking about that or at least uh, allowing the suggestion to, you know, lay very strongly um, over the show. I think that's very important. Um, and I think one other thing that I really liked about the show, um, of the things that I did like, is that in these flashbacks, we see that Lee has always been a kind of a frantic person or a kind of uh, like tightly wound, I guess you could say, and that she's not perfect. She's not a perfect grieving widow in the present and in the past. She maybe was not a perfect um, girlfriend or wife or a partner. Um, so I, I like that we see that, you know, it's not an easy way to characterize them. You know, we can't say that she was a, overly devoted wife and now she'll never move on or anything like that i just i like the 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 shades of her character that we see from the past and and the present put together did you guys enjoy it was it enjoyable for you to watch uh no not for me (laughs) yeah i thought it was enjoyable i mean enjoyable in the like in the existentially um destroyed way yes it was very enjoyable i mean i think I'm getting to an age where um, I'm more fascinated by these types of stories because they resonate in a way that I don't think they would have like 20 years ago. But I think the idea of a young person grieving is something that I'm so fascinated by um, having you know, lost a friend in my early 20s and then a very good friend when I was 30. I didn't really feel like there were helpful ways of thinking about grief at those life stages and the kind of weird ways that grief kind of plays tricks on your head about what you remember and what you don't remember and all the unfinished business. And so I think that this is enjoyable in the sense that um, it speaks to relationship dynamics for people, you know, kind of in their 30s or maybe early 40s that I just think a lot of um, a lot of popular culture doesn't quite know how to attend to, and it isn't too dependent on the mystery parts of it. There's still some questions about Matt's death, but this doesn't go down to like a true crime Dateline rabbit hole. It's really about the relationships and managing change, and this also made me um, really miss Six Feet Under, which I always joke that I'm still recovering from the last episode of Six Feet Under. Yeah. Uh, It also reminds me of um, a recent novel um, by Linda Holmes, Evie Drake Starts Over, which is about a woman who, um, you know, she had decided to end her marriage and shortly after that, her husband dies. And so we, you know, we get like a year after we come in like a year after that or so to where she's kind of trapped in the role of grieving widow and has to move on. But, you know, is she grieving as much as she should be and that kind of thing? And so I'm like what Marsha was saying earlier, I'm kind of interested in this young people um, dealing with grief or people we wouldn't expect to normally have to deal with um, death so early. 
but I, I love Six Feet Under. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was definitely thinking of it, particularly in the way that the um, in the way that Sorry for Your Loss is shot, um, the cinematography and this kind of muddy um, sepia look that it seems to have um, through it. Yeah, I, I would say also that I think it's it can speak to a lot of emotional landscapes that have nothing to do with grief. I think it's a lot about how impossible it is to know uh, what another person is going through, you know, whether it comes to grief or mental illness or, you know, the fact that you've lost somebody and and feel like you don't know them as well as you thought you did. And, and you know, knowing that and feeling empathy for those people anyway and being present for them anyway. And I think that's what I enjoyed most about it was the sort of um, the, the broadness of the way that I could, you know, relate to it or find a way into it. Um, and I think it's sort of optimistic or, or big hearted in that way, even as it's dealing with death. Listeners, let us know what you thought of the show. If you've seen it, I'm particularly interested in how people who've experienced grief are watching the show and interpreting the show. I know I've seen a lot of stuff posted about it on websites dedicated to grieving. Uh, you can email us at thewaves@slate.com. Okay, it's time for our recommendations. Who wants to go first? Oh, I can go. I would like to recommend an Instagram account called The Tiny Chef Show. Oh, my God. Um, and that is the full handle, The Tiny Chef Show, if I could get my C-H and S's right. It's a stop motion puppet animated thing. I don't know exactly what you want to call it, but it is delightful. It's this little bean and he um, prepares ve- vegan meals. It's tiny food, right? So if you're into the whole tiny food thing, um, you can watch it. The whole tiny food thing. Is that a <laughs> Thing. Yes, Tiny, the tiny. Food yes, thing. it's like ASMR, <laughs> but you're watching people prepare little m- okay. miniature meals. I kind of know what you're talking yeah. about. And then a gerbil eats it or something. Well, no, like oh. they just prepare it, so it's like a little cute little dime-sized plate of food that you're looking at. <laughs> I don't know, but um, yeah. So this is stop motion animation, and the chef has a speech impediment, I guess you could call it. And so there's he has speech progression lessons, um, and so you get to see him sometimes going through his speech therapy um, lessons with a speech therapy coach, and it's just delightful. And I think you know maybe that happened because maybe some people were concerned that the animator illustrator was making fun of people who have speech um, delays or things like that. But no, he's actually highlighting the fact that people can, you know, work through their different their differences and the way that they communicate with some time. And that if you just sit with people and remain patient with them, you can understand them. So you can both like have this middle ground of communication if possible. Um, on Sundays, he does no screen Sundays. So he'll prepare you like before the before Sundays, he'll like, okay, this is what I'm going to do on no screen Sunday. And what are you going to do for no screen Sunday? So basically, they're encouraging you to, you know, put down your phone, step away from your laptop, step away from the TV and do something else. I just I just love it. The Tiny Chef Show on Instagram. I also have an Instagram account to recommend. It's called Trash Palace. And it's actually a store. But even if you don't buy anything from it, I think you will enjoy following it. It's um, a pretty new um, DC area Instagram based thrift shop. Um, It's, you know, a bunch of tchotchkes from across the 20th century. Some of them are actually, you know, semi-elegant, I would say, these beautiful vintage vases or pitchers or dishware. Um, But the best stuff is just this, like, really weird collection of novelty items that the proprietor finds in thrift stores and then resells on Instagram. And the um, captions she writes is part of the fun. I have gotten one item from this store. It's a piggy bank shaped like a giant fist. I don't know why anybody made it um, or when it's from or what the purpose is, but I knew that I wanted it on my shelf. I would say that if you follow this account, you'll probably get a laugh out of most of the items and think, you know, who the hell would buy this thing until you find that one thing that is absolutely you and you'll get it. There's a lot of like weird souvenir items, which I always love seeing mid-century souvenirs from Niagara Falls or there's like a salt and pepper shaker that was on there that's shaped like a pair of feet. And they say, I walked my feet off in Hershey Park. Why would you want salt and pepper coming out of 
a foot or, you know, a pair of naked feet sitting on your table. (laughs) If you're in the D.C. area, you can buy them and pick them up for free or the proprietor will ship them to you if you're not in the area. It's just such a joy to follow. Um, And I don't follow a lot of Instagram accounts that aren't people I know, but this has been such a great addition to my feed. It's called Trash Palace. And on Instagram, the handle is shop.trashpalace. Please follow it. I am going to recommend a podcast that seems as much fun as your Instagram account. There's a new podcast called Scam Goddess, hosted by comedian Lacey Mosley, and each week she has a guest on to talk about some scammer. Um, It's super funny, and um, you can just enjoy the storytelling as she recounts um, the shenanigans of some of our favorite scammers. Um, The first episode that premiered... um, a couple weeks ago was about Anna Delvey, the scammer socialite of mm, New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of jokes. There's a lot of good storytelling. And so if you enjoy a good scam story, then you will enjoy Scam Goddess. I've got to check that out. That sounds really good. All right. That's it for our show today. Thank you to Sarah Burningham, who produced this episode, and Cleo Levin and Rosemary Belson, who provided production assistance. And thank you to our listeners for listening. For Marsha Chatlin and Nicole Perkins, I'm Christina Cotarucci. As you all hopefully know, our very own Nicole hosts Thirst Aid Kit with co-host Bim Adewunmi. Thirst Aid Kit recently joined the Slate Podcast Network. So we're going to play a clip from the show's first episode with Slate. I love him. <laughs> That was actually delivered like his most famous character. So I'm grateful. That pause was perfect. I also love him. He's great. We are, of course, talking about Dan Levy. Oof. Wow. He of the magnificent eyebrows. The most magnificent. Like, he comes from a dynasty of great eyebrows. Like, <sighs> you may not know this. Dan's father is Eugene Levy, mm-hmm. who plays his father on Shit's Creek. Yes. But Dan himself is quite something to look at he is quite a snack (laughs) (laughs) high protein low sugar really Uh, kind of like slow release snacking he is something else like he just keeps adding like you look at him and there's the initial pow yeah and then waves of it hit you hours later and you're like oh i'm still on this you know so I am. I was late to Shit's Creek, right? I, <laughs> I just, same. <laughs> I just started watching it um, last month or so oh, in, wow. in August. Uh-huh. I, obviously, I'd seen people talking about it, and I'd seen Dan, you know, people sharing. I talked stuff about and, it a lot. Yeah, yeah. But I just didn't have the time to like sit because you know it's just there's so much TV and so yes. much stuff out there. Anyway, I agree. So I was doing some work. And I was like, I'm going to reward myself when I finish this task. I'm going to reward myself and finally get into Shit's Creek. Mm-hmm. I was so distracted mm. by how beautiful mm-hmm. he was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, he's funny. Yes. Very funny. Just just perfect comedic timing mm-hmm. in a way that you don't often see yeah. anymore. Um, and that may be because of his father, because right. of that, you know, that very like... Um, I know his father from SCTV, it's oh, okay. a Canadian um, sketch show uh-huh. similar to Saturday Night Live. Right. I used to watch it with my sister when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Didn't know what was going on because like, the humor was over my head. Right. You know, they were talking about stuff that I had no idea. So I was very young. I was like seven or something like that. But even then, mm-hmm. Eugene mm-hmm. was somebody that I would just watch just like mm-hmm. as he walked across the screen. So then when I'm looking at Shit's Creek... And I see his son, who looks almost exactly like him, but just like <laughs> polished a little bit, you know, yeah. like a he like, uses moisturizer. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like Eugene is the uh, rough crystal, and Dan is the polished crystal. Yeah, he's cut. Know? Yeah, yeah. No, I fully, I fully understand what you're saying. I was also late to to Shit's Creek. I it looked to me to be a very silly show because mm-hmm. um, I never even read about what it was about. But every time I saw one of the posters, I was like, Ugh, is this like a parody or something? I don't care for this. <laughs> so I wasn't really, and I, even though I love Eugene Levy, I was like, eh, I'll get to it, I mm-hmm, suppose. Mm-hmm. But then all these people whose opinion I respect were like, oh my God, Shit's Creek, it's great. Yeah. You don't think it's going to be great? I promise you it's great. And I was like, fine. Mm-hmm. So I started watching it and like you, I was distracted by Dan. And then I found out all these other bits of information that A, he was a showrunner, 
he right. wrote a good number of these things. And, you know, a part of me also, when I first heard about him being showrunner, was kind of like, eh, is this because your dad is Eugene Levy? Right, and yeah, he bought yeah. you a little tea? And it was like, no, no. This guy is actually talented. And like you said, fantastic comedic timing mm-hmm. because I suppose when you are in the Levy household, <laughs> it enters you like osmosis. I don't know. He is very, very good in the show. And yeah. the show itself is fantastic. And my only regret is that I didn't start it sooner. Yes. Because I could have been on this train a long time a ago. A long time ago. And Shit's Creek is about a family who... Um, the father trusted uh, an accountant lost they lost all their money and um it turns out that the only thing of value that they had is this small town that um the father Johnny had bought as a joke because the yes. town's name is Shit's Creek um <laughs> he bought it for his son yeah. ironically yeah. Um, and that was also based on a real life thing where Kim Basinger bought a town somewhere years what? ago. I didn't know that. Yeah, so Dan basically was like, what's the weirdest celebrity shit? I, I know, that time Kim Basinger bought a town. And so that wow. was his, yeah. Which again, you see, my guy reads. He understands yes. the world. I'm proud yes. of him. Good for him. But like, it's it's a ridiculous premise. So initially, mm-hmm. like you said, it's a fall from grace mm-hmm. for this super rich family who have to move to this small, weird town yes. called Shits Creek. And they get there and it's populated with all these weird characters, right. obviously. Of course. But the family themselves, like, Johnny, who's played by Eugene Levy, is mm-hmm. married to Moira, who's played by <laughs> Catherine O'Hara. <laughs> Catherine O'Hara, for those who don't know, is God-level comedy. There is also the daughter, Alexis, mm-hmm. um, who is, again, the best actor working with her hands out there. She is. <sighs> she has the most amazing mannerisms. Her face is like this comedy goldmine. I love the actor. And then Dan, who is playing uh, David Rose. Yes. And the four of them end up living in two motel rooms mm-hmm. in like this shitty little, sh- it's a mm-hmm. shitty motel in, sh- in Shits Creek. <laughs> and essentially it's them, I suppose, learning how to be human. Yeah. And learning um, how to be a family because they, they're coming from New York um, and they didn't, re- they were very, they're very New York, right? Yes. Or this idea of what New York wealth is where... Mm-hmm. You know, they barely know each other beyond the things to insult each other with. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And it's just really nice to see the actual growth of the family, of the characters. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because sometimes in these kinds of sitcoms, it's easy to keep them stuck in the same characterizations because, you you know, oh, it's funny. The audience likes it. Let's just keep them the same. But they stay the same as they evolve and become better people. Which brings us neatly to Dan, who plays (sighs) David. Oh, my gosh. Who is essentially his character. He embodies this absolutely... He is he is very much a man child. Yes. Who, for the first time, is having to name his neuroses. He's having to name himself basically Mm -hmm. he's rebirthing himself Mm -hmm. having been placed in a situation that was out of his comfort zone in every single way Mm -hmm. the thing i love about david as as dan plays him is like he comes in he is not unaware of the ridiculousness of himself and his family yes he knows that he is a wealthy privileged or was anyway a wealthy privileged for want of a better word dickhead like this you know, he used to run a gallery space with, you know, performance <laughs> artists and some of the art that he describes, you're like, what? And so it's like, he he's very aware of his pretentiousness. He knows that he does wear obscure Japanese drop crotch designers. <laughs> he knows that his clothes are, you know, beautiful. Yes, silly a little bit. He is very, very self-aware. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of all of that, he is also understanding that mm, maybe there are better ways to be. Make sure you subscribe to Thirst Aid Kit wherever you get your podcasts for brand new thirst in your feed every week.